<coughs> Podcast Network Asia. Hi, this is Michael Wades, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast, where we discuss all things Asia and all things tech. Today, I'm joined by Oyi Chu, the Chief Commercial Officer at iStocks. Oyi, how are you doing today? I'm good. Hi, Michael. Glad to be with you on your podcast. It's great to have you here, and I love the fact that you actually have a decent microphone <laughs> because it's just going to make the sound so much better. Your voice sounds great, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, love to be on. Have practiced a few times, so you know I'm ready for this. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. That's good. Can you give us a little bit of your background for context before we start talking about iStocks itself? Sure. Um, I had a very traditional capital markets uh, background. I started in uh, Citigroup. Uh, well, actually, Solomon Smith, Barney Schroders. You know, all all, all that uh, Citigroup. It was a long name. Very, very, very long name. Yeah, in 2000, and that's when I started my career and have been at a number of banks, and I know we've overlapped a few. And, you know, I saw the birth of REITs in the early 2000s, and I saw what REITs did in democratizing real estate investments um, for retail investors, right? And over the 20 years, Singapore, obviously, that was a big evolutionary piece of Singapore's capital markets. In my last role, I was at UBS and I ran investment banking for UBS. And where I saw the shift was the change in the market patterns around the public markets, where passives, algorithms were taking over a lot of the uh, public markets. And I saw a lot of clients at UBS who, at the private banking level, wanted to increase the exposure to alternative assets. And as an investment banker, I mean, to marry that move from public markets into private markets was something that was uh, very fascinating to me. And it showed me that there is a shift in the capital markets and that the alternative assets were getting more accessible to high net worth individuals. And I mean, ultra high net worth individuals. Right. And so when um, iStocks and I sat down and had a conversation and Danny, the CEO, uh, one of the things that really got me thinking was the democratizing of alternative assets and the you know the potential convergence from public to private, but that's obviously a, a longer uh, conversation. But where does technology exist today to make that democratization possible? And so this conversation was very fascinating to me, and I thought about it very, very long and hard about the potential of Singapore as a financial hub and where the Singapore financial hub needs to evolve. So I joined ISOX as a chief commercial officer a year and a little bit ago, Okay. just before we got the license. And I think what I see is, and what ISOX wants to do, is to take some lessons out of the public markets, improve on the version of public markets, right. and to use that technology to present actually a very, very big opportunity set in the private markets. And what do I mean by that? For alternative assets, I mean private equity, private equity funds, hedge funds, structured credit. I mean, even simple things like wholesale bonds, right, are not necessarily that accessible to the high net worth individuals who are maybe between 2 to 20 million uh, in net worth. 
right? And kind of that's what iStocks aspires to do. And we got our license uh, last year. And, you know, we can talk a little bit more about what we've done over the last uh, 12, 15 months. Can you be more explicit for people that may not understand exactly what you mean by getting a license? What kind of type of license did you get? Was it a capital markets license? Was it issued by the MAS, the Monetary Authority of Singapore? What does that really mean? So when we created the company and the business model, um, we thought about it at an infrastructure level. And we thought about how would we use technology to digitize security? And that actually means from the issuance to the custody to the trading and the post-trade management. And what that means is from a licensing perspective, we needed the license to issue. So we have a license in the capital markets that is dealing in securities. We also have a capital markets license for custody because as a platform, we custodize the digital securities. We also have what is called the recognized market operator which is the license to operate an exchange. Right, okay. Can we talk about the, just the natural progression of the capital markets? So just so people understand that what's happening now in the private markets actually is mirrored by what happened in the public markets in the sense that if you go back to the 1970s and the 1980s, really only institutions and super high net worth individuals had access to the market. But as technology started giving smaller institutions and then smaller individuals direct access to the market, whether it was through companies like E-Trade or Toronto, you know, TD Trade and companies like that, that it really did not just democratize it, but make it much less expensive, particularly on a commission-taking side, for people to come in and trade in the markets. And it literally changed the entire structure of the trading markets, right? You couldn't have had yes. high-frequency trading, really, because there wouldn't have been enough liquidity for it without all of this retail involvement on the opens and on the closes and around events. Is that fair? I think uh, if I take that comparison back, right? And that's the interesting point here, because when uh, scriptless shares happens, what? 30, 40 years ago, yeah. that really changed part of the evolution of public markets, right? I mean, even right. before the E-Trade, I mean, well, sort of around uh, E-Trades evolved as part of that. Right. And if you think about it, scriptless shares is actually the first version or the analog version of digitization of trading securities, right? Right. And as you said, it gave a lot of access to retail. It gave liquidity flow, et cetera, into what is the public markets. And if you step back and think about what's happened is obviously there's, there's a lot of dynamic in that public market, but increasingly that's converging with the private markets. And what's happened in the last decade or so is the sovereign wealth funds and the institutions and the asset managers were, were looking for a, an asset class that was away from the public markets and uncorrelated to the public markets. Right. And so 10 years ago, um, I would say the allocation for all these sovereign wealth funds and insurance companies, maybe 10% uh, of their portfolio was in alternatives, right? Alternatives, yeah. Today, that number is 20%. And because it was in the realm of sovereign wealth funds, large institutional capital, large asset managers, there was no need for a market infrastructure to exist the way it does in the public space. It's a super good point though, right? Because it can only be an alternative investment, right? For an insurance company who are some of the largest investors in the world for institutional investors like Vanguard and you know BlackRock and what used to be BGI and State Street that run gigantic investment portfolios, capital included. When they start allocating money in the fund, to 6% range into hedge funds and other alternative investments, they're still alternative. But once you get to 10 and 20%, then they're just mainstream investment vehicles. It's a strange thing, yes. though, right? You know what I mean? They're no longer yes. alternative. We still call them alternative investments, but they're not. So what they try to do 
because I believe, and tell me where I'm wrong here, is that there's an arbitrage, right? And this is why hedge funds worked for a long time, because they were making investments or had investment strategies that other companies didn't have. So they were taking advantage of market um, inefficiencies that others couldn't see or take advantage of. And technology obviously helped them do that. They could trade faster, all these things. But as soon as that technology became more widespread, that arbitrage reverted to the mean and it became much harder for them to earn money. So now they're looking for other investments. And I think that's where a company like iStocks comes in because Mm -hmm. now you can take, and the democratization process happens faster, no? Because technology moves faster and information moves faster. Yes, is that right? Exactly. That's right. I I think how I see it, and again, REITs are so old school in the way you think about it, but think about the wealth that has been created in REITs. Sure. Think about the efficiency in the real estate market that has been created by REITs. And so if you just take that one example and you just sort of ex- exploded that within the iStocks potential, I mean, think about the hedge, I mean, just think about the private real estate portfolios we could bring into fractionalize and, and distribute wider to a wider range of investors. Absolutely. Think about structured credit. What does that mean? How does that uh, work? You know, hedge funds, even that making that possible for a $20,000, $50,000 investor mm-hmm. is uh, something that I think will create a, a different worldview of what alternatives should be and get alternatives actually closer and closer and converge into, I mean, I, I don't think you'll ever converge, but because of the different structures, but that line is sort of getting closer and closer, right? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned structured credit and I want to get back to this in a second. <laughs> One, Sorry, just so interesting. Can you tell I'm interested? One of the things that changed when individual investors or you know small investors entered the market via technology was the market microstructure had to change and the rules around information dispersion had to change as well, right? Because if these big institutions had an information edge, the regulators determined that that wasn't fair. Right, so that they got access to pre-IPO red herrings and all the documentation that went around the roadshows and stuff like that. If they were going to participate in an IPO, they got the right to get the documentation. How do small investors know in the alternative space, which moves, you're right, it's a moving target at some level, but how do they know they're getting into the best deals or that they're just getting into any deal? Does that make sense? Yes, and that's a good question. And we're, we're a little bit young and sort of we're trying to be as careful as we can we want to make sure that we don't have bad investments. Right. The universe of average to good investments is actually a lot. Yeah, right? it's huge. And where we want to be is to make sure that we ensure the track record. Let's just focus on funds for a moment, right? We focus on uh, the track record of fund manager, the proper licensing, the strategy, uh, what's the underlying so that we can appropriately position this and explain this to our clients exactly what the product is. Right. Because we don't give advice, we're a platform. Here we we're saying, for example, if we had a Maple Tree uh, Europe Income Trust, which is a private fund, right. you know, what are the risks involved in that? What would be the, what's the track record of the manager? How would they... Uh, it's underlying is illiquid assets uh, underlying it. So you're not going to get like a monthly nav. Uh, and so investors who go in uh, expect either some kind of a return of a distribution or some kind right. of a, you know, exit in five years or whatever that is. Right. So we were quite clear about things like that. We also have a listing committee, which is independent. So even though we at the commercial and the legal team do the diligence, There is a process where we have an independent panel, which exists of people like our SGX uh, representative, uh, Sutat, 
We also have an ex-MAS MD, uh, Assistant Managing Director on our listing com. We also have ex-bankers, you know, heads of, head of security, Snell's Reeds from uh, Citigroup and SGX. And, and they actually take a very, very commercial but legal and governance view about what kind of products we are listing and taking to our investors. So this is actually even more interesting. So what you've done essentially is you've taken the, the capital markets license and coupled it with the we can be an exchange license yes. and then taken private deals to which most even high net worth individuals would never have heard of because most private equity deals happen I don't want to say in the dark, but they happen privately. Yes. And even more so, most real estate deals, nobody ever knows about them. Yes. Like literally exactly. your next door neighbor could be a real estate billionaire and you'd never know because those things don't sort of publicly trade. Yes. And then you've made put it on exchange. So now you're curating them, almost acting like you want to get on the TSE one, you have to meet these qualifications or in the Singapore top tier part of the stock exchange, you have to meet these qualifications. You're making those rules now so that yes. that's one of the ways that people know that they're getting into good deals as opposed to just sort of rando private equity things right? Yes. And that's cool. That's actually kind of cool. And actually, this is quite interesting because the alternative space is completely white space at the moment. Completely. Right? Yeah, completely. completely. It's inefficient. There, there are a lot of distributors. There's a lot of product. And so at least since I've been here, we've been quite thoughtful. Uh, we try to be very thoughtful about the things that we take on. Partly because obviously of our reputation and our shareholders expect that reputation out of us. And also, you know, the support we've been getting from Singapore means that we actually turn away probably nine out of 10 deals because we, we either don't think that they will find a home within our distribution base uh, or we don't think it's appropriate from a risk and, and a lot of that is a governance risk, right? You know, what, what yeah. kind of um, yeah. things like that. You're right, and, and but it is a white space. And therefore, we are still trying to understand um, sure, sure, sure. what's the right level. Yeah. How do you handle counterparty risk? So, and I guess the follow-on question is, let's say you have access to the exchanges, or you and I have access to the exchanges, Michael. And I go onto the exchange and I buy a private equity product or I buy some real estate investment. You have no idea what I'm doing. And then I decide, you know, six weeks later that I want to sell it and I sell it and you're the buyer. But I don't know that because it's a blind purchase like it is on a regular stock exchange. Yes, correct. That's true, right? Who takes the counterparty risk? Is it the same thing as an exchange where you as a firm take the risk? That is the beauty of uh, a blockchain. We'll get to uh, that in a second. Right? Okay. Yeah. Because the, we actually, uh, investors, when they want to buy or they want to subscribe to a new offering or they want to buy on the secondary market, they have to pre-fund their accounts. Okay. So we settle DVP. We actually never take anybody's risk. Nobody takes anybody's risk because it's settled instantaneously. Do you, you want to explain to, to people what DVP is for people that don't know? Uh, delivery versus payment. payment. So, yep, so I get it. I just want to make sure other people know. Yeah, yeah. Well, even that, I'm not sure people understand. So for the listeners and, and the boring mechanics of settlement, in a, in a traditional uh, exchange, the exchange interacts with the broker. Right? right. The exchange does not know who actually the buyer or the seller is. No. And the exchange then sort of says to the, the buyer broker, hey, you know, please uh, show up with the cash. And it tells the seller broker, hey, please show up with your shares. This all takes T plus two or T plus three. Three, yeah. three days or whatever that is. On our platform, because we know exactly. So we have basically... Our platform, which is why I say this, but like the version 4.0 of the electronic uh, um, version of shares, is uh, we now not only have the matching engine, but we have the issuer, the, the, the sort of the broker uh, pieces, which is handles the investor piece. 
so investors and on the same platform. So the blockchain identifies who the buyer and the seller are and identifies how much the buyer has in his wallet and ensures that amount is appropriate before it crosses the trade. So when it crosses the trade, it immediately settles instantaneously. So what, what kind of blockchain is this sitting on? Is it a, um, is it an Ethereum blockchain that uses yes. smart contracts to do this? Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Okay. Are you blown away, right? Like you're not new to this business. Are you completely blown away by, and maybe this is just better for a private conversation between you and me, but I am completely blown away by the way because I did this, right? I was the guy on the trading desk who said, if we apply technology to a business like this, we can add scale to it. We can lower commissions, do instead of $100 million worth of business, we can do $2 billion worth of business and make more money because the technology allows us to be more efficient. That's what I did. That was my whole career, right? Sitting yes. on a trading desk. Yes. And I mean, think about it. I asked you the question about who takes the counterparty risk and what the blockchain does to be really explicit is it says there is no counterparty risk. Yes. Because it only sells DVP, right? Delivery versus yes. payment. But it also means that if you don't have money in your account and the way that the blockchain works, right? By, if you're using Ethereum, it's a smart contract. So it's predetermined what's gonna happen as soon as the events, right? So it's parametric, which means that as soon as the event occurs and is, is um, confirmed, Correct. you're done. There's no failing. There's no like two day T plus two settlement. No. You no. must be blown away when you see this. I, I, you know, I have to say, even today, I, I mean, I've been in this company for one plus years. And again, we're young and we're not perfect and there's always something to solve. But the, the thought of just that whole process, and it's not even about, okay, let's just even step aside the scaling for a moment. Just think of the operational issues in a bank. I mean, I just got to uh, chill of, thinking about it. Go ahead. I mean, systems that cost hundreds of millions you know, a hundred people in the ops room on laptops trying to reconcile, you know, stuff every single day sure. is done on a platform. We have an ops team of less than five and everything is automated. I mean, just the smart contract. Actually, what is digitization? Digitization is just automation of an activity of a security. So, you know, it, it frightens people because, uh, you know, a lot of people don't understand it. They hear the word blockchain and they hear the word digitization. They're kind of like, oh, mumbo jumbo. Right. But actually, it is just like, as you said, it, the smart contract is a bunch of code that right. says do this if that happens. And if coupon payment comes in, automatically calculates who owns the bond, how much of right. that bond, right. and just pays the tokens immediately into the, the customer's account. Right. This is one of the reasons why on this show, I like to break it down into its component points. This is the reason why I asked you a DVP meant delivery versus payment. I know but we take for granted that when we use those terms and it's the blockchain's the same way. You know, if you, if you start talking to your aunt or your uncle and you go, are you trading DVP? Or are you trading on margin? She may look at you like you're crazy, but you know what yeah. that means intrinsically. And if you just move that into the technology sphere with blockchain and Ethereum and smart contracts and you know, private codes and public codes and all the terminology around it. Now you're even more further away from understanding from people. So it scares them. But the reality is that this type of automation, there's no difference really at the core between somebody taking water and soap on a washboard and rubbing a thing on it to get it clean to building a tiny engine and putting it into a washing machine and having electricity everywhere and then creating a washing machine. It feels different. But it, once you do it, you're like, oh, that thing works. Is that fair? 
Yes, yes. That is a very interesting analogy, but that's exactly right. I mean, we obviously there are many, many use cases for blockchain on crypto related things, which we right. at the moment don't. I mean, we don't, we use the technology to solve an old school financial security problem, not right. obviously crypto. I mean, that's a separate conversation. We can have, do another podcast on crypto, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but blockchain by itself is so powerful. It is as a concept, just even the concept that a lot of financial institutions are thinking about how to build that in. The right. problem with traditional institutions is that they have to worry about the you know, 100 people in the ops team, that they have, what do they do with them? What do they do with the existing old systems? What do they, but actually the elegance, the elegance and the simplicity mm. of blockchain is, is, is nuts. I mean, it's insane. Do you want to know how I collaborate with some of the best brands in the world at Asia Tech Podcast? I use Podmetrics. This is the best way to connect to your favorite brands and monetize your podcast. If you are a podcaster, you can sign up now at podmetrics.co and use the referral code Asia Tech Podcast, all one word, to get full control of your show's monetization, regardless of your show's size. And if you're a brand and want to collaborate with the Asia Tech Podcast, head over to advertiser.podmetrics.co, it's spelled like it sounds, and sign up now. And to be fair, We've been moving here, if you've been in the industry long enough, we've been moving here since the first day dot and super dot on the New York Stock Exchange when you first started trading, trading digitally um, happened. And as soon as we brought computers in, we started automating individual tasks, combining them together on networks, then doing it globally. It's just another step in the process of this automation for the entire market. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. exactly. That's exactly magic, right. right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Can, can I ask you this? So you're regulated by the MAS in Singapore. You have an, an exchange license. I forget what you called it, but I know there's a, a technical term for it. I just forgot. But can you trade outside of the Singapore market? Do you have the legal ability to trade? Like, let's say there was a um, an alternative asset in the United States in the real estate market that had a very compelling return. Let's say it had a 25% cap rate and a 20% IRR. Yep. Right. The answer is no. So when we created this because of the licensing and, you know, with, with tech, you're kind of always, you, there's always a tension between regulatory security, sure. um, you know, KYC, AML, all of that comes into play, right? Again, we could go on about DeFi and what that means. But in, in this case, because we're regulated, uh, we needed to comply with many, many of the MAS things that we have to comply with which includes uh, cybersecurity, um, which includes KYC AML. We need to understand who our investors are. And that actually means that we built our, Ethereum, uh, we built our, our blockchain across a Ethereum protocol that's a private permissions uh, structure. So our nodes are all owned by us. Um, and, okay, and we do, so we use it for efficiency purposes, not for, not for connectivity purposes. Now, um, so all the products need to be specifically tokenized specifically like on our platform. So it can't, it can't, it's worthless outside of our, our platform. But if you think of the beauty of, of what is blockchain and the potential connectivity of that, it won't be in the very far future that we put, could look at an exchange to exchange connectivity, right? Yeah, I mean, again, this I mean, is just the natural progression. Look at Europe. They used to trade on the DAX and the VIX and all these other places, and then it just all consolidated into one exchange. Fine, it's all fungible. It's all the same yeah. thing. 
yeah. it's not shocking to those of us that have done it, right? Exactly. I mean, in fact, we are already in a number of conversations with uh, the US. I mean, the US has a few sort of marketplaces and I won't really, I mean, they're not blockchain exchanges or anything like that. Right. But if they have positions in unicorn shares, for example, uh, that, you know, they're, they're, they're very good. I mean, they're, they're, that market is very developed in the US, secondaries market. And so could we work with some of them to source interesting unicorns from the US uh, here to be distributed into Asian clients using tokenization. So, and ex again, as I've been through this so many times, right? There are plenty of people that own shares pre-IPO, like in Uber and Airbnb and companies like this, right? right? And they just don't want to go through the process of the IPO. They want to sell them and just like move on to something else. Take that money they've made twenty x or thirty x. They just want to get out. Yeah. But there are plenty of investors in Asia who think I want to be in pre-IPO because I want to sell on the bounce kind of thing, right? It's a very yep. well-known strategy. Yeah. But if you could tokenize that, yeah, that would be super cool. But here's another question for you. <laughs> you knew, you knew that WeWork was overvalued at 40 or $50 billion. You 100% knew it. <laughs> but there was no way to short it. Mm. But you would have shorted it. I talked about this for literally a couple of years. Like if I could short WeWork, wow. I would definitely do it. But if yeah. we can build an exchange that, and I'm happy to work with you on this idea, but if we can build an exchange that can short pre-public companies that are slightly <laughs> illiquid that you know are going to go down, then instead of buying the unicorns, you can sell the unicorns because you can digitize that activity. Well, nothing to create a note for that short, you know? So there's uh, many ways to do it. Yeah, I think so. How hard is it? Like, what does it mean for an issuer? In other words, if you go to an issuer, a real estate fund or, you know, just a stock or a bond holder, what mm. is the process like for them and... I guess the follow-on question to the, to that is, you know, most of these people aren't used to the digitization process. They're used to the sort of regular process. So take me through this idea of going to somebody who says, and says, I can get you more liquidity. I can give you access to smaller investors legally, and I can digitize the entire process to make it smoother and frictionless for people to buy and sell your securities or create a security for you. How does that whole process work from sort of convincing them to do it, getting through your curation process, and then actually issuing the digital security. Yeah, so the, the beautiful thing about our platform is that, let's say a fund manager, let's just make this up, KKR yeah. or Apollo, you know, whoever, Maple Tree, right. whoever. Yeah, yeah. And to them, they actually never need to uh, see the actual technology digitization happening. I mean, frankly, they don't have to. What is minimum requirement at that end or our end, depending on, on who ends up doing the work, right. uh, we either do it directly or do it with a S SPV uh, structure, okay. right? right? There's some level of documentation to recognize the tokenization. Now, Singapore regulations have been very good. They actually are very clear that a digitized security is the same as the underlying security. So in Singapore, it's actually relatively straightforward legal conversion or, or legal tweaks in, in documents that, that need to happen, right? Understood. And uh, once we have that document, and again, we, we then do the diligence and we, we work at the diligence level as a single entity, very much like a single limited partner and very much like an institutional limited partner because we'd ask the same questions, right? Got it. Okay. And once we get through to the listing committee process, again, all sort of relatively stuff that the manager doesn't have to really worry about it. Uh, 
Post that, we work with the fund. If they would like to do so, do a marketing webinar with us. That's or you know one-on-one -on -one calls with larger investors if there were requests. So again, not we're trying to harmonize a traditional process and just really saying actually the digitization process is so simple. Right. You don't even have to know how it happens. Then what we do is we we launch it on our platform. We aggregate the the, the dollars from our investors. It completes and it transfers. There's no, you know, there's no waiting. There's no there's no delay. There's no the money is the money is money because we as we said we settle DVP and subscription <laughs> and uh, off we go. That's it. If the fund manager requires a post, uh, for example, let's say uh, MAS wants a you know to audit and make sure they appropriately KYC their LPs and their sub-investors, I mean, we produce the report on an instantaneous basis, right? Because, I mean, we're a blockchain, so everything's on the ledger. Right. And uh, everything happens thereafter, notifications, announcements, distributions, everything is handled by a single team and everything then is on our platform is just, again, automated and handled aut automatically. Right. How big do you think the market is for this? Let's just leave away the stock markets. Look, we know the, we know the daily trading, if my numbers are correct, in the FX markets are $5 trillion a day. Like, it's just massive and super liquid. But do you have a sense? And you can say, like, I'm just not sure. It's a fair answer, right? Because I don't know either. But when you're going through the, like, how big is the total addressable market for this thing, what are you thinking? Okay, I mean, private market size, I don't know, uh, $4 trillion, I'd say. Yeah, I just, just want to give people a sense that people that are listening, it's huge, right? Yeah, yeah, it's huge. I mean, okay, let, let's just say I'm just making this up. I'm just like Googling it and it says $4 trillion. That's okay. Can so you use $4 trillion? Yeah. Um, $4 trillion is, let's say, total private market size, um, of which institutions are probably 99% of that right now, right? Easily. More. <laughs> if, if you could be more. <laughs> I mean, yeah. 102% of it, yeah. 98.9. Uh, you know, maybe private banks are 2% of that. I mean, you know, whatever that number is. That number will definitely grow. That sure. number can only be going up. Because now if I can create the, uh, or if platforms like ourselves can just create that opportunity and liquidity and we handle the nitty-gritty details of the smaller investors for the large issuers, the large issuers are like, that's great. I'm legitimized on a regulated platform. I raise more money. I get my name out there, get more fees as a manager. I, I think it's a win-win for everyone. Most securities are going to get digitized at some level. Is that a fair thing to say? Absolutely. So that just means that if, even if you go beyond the hedge funds and the alternative investments and go back to just sort of traditional stock markets and bond markets, you know, again, yes. they went through their own sort of going electronic stage but they will get digitized as well. The same way, like you said, it went from scripts to scriptless to completely, yeah. I don't want to say digitized, but to electronic trading. At some point, every stock and bond is going to sit on a blockchain at some level. Well, actually, let's just be more specific on some sort of distributed ledger technology, right? Because otherwise Correct. it wouldn't make any sense. Well, all the exchanges are experimenting with it, right? If you sure, look sure, at sure. SGX, SGX yeah. has done the digital bond piece and they have done it at a, at a ledger level, uh, so at the depository level. And what they want to do, I mean, if you see the ambitions uh, that they've announced, they want to do, obviously, the end-to-end -end sort of post-trade management sort of part of it. But where ex traditional exchanges were built, as I said to you, they don't have visibility on counterparties. Right. 
Whereas the alternatives market still requires that um, counterparty visibility because we need to do the KYC and the AML to ensure that investors are sold the right product. And alts, obviously, are sold to accredited investors and above, right? Right, right, right. But at a very, very big level, I mean, everyone, ASX has ex- experimented with uh, digitization as well, so on, on a distributed ledger. And I think the world has to go there. It is something that can put up so much efficiency. It's going to take off so much cost in labor, in error, in systems. Uh, I can't see this not happening in a, a larger way. I do see, as I, I said, traditional institutions have, because they have built their IT spend and strategy around the all systems, Right. that's the one that will take the time to transition and unwind. So how long, right, and I think that could take a while, right, because they have all these, it's almost like post-legacy legacy systems, right? I mean, one of the things that I did, we talked about this at the beginning, was we took all the legacy systems that existed at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and then updated them and modernized them, and that took a while. You mm. know, moving everything off of a Sun workstation onto a network-connected PC using C++ as opposed to C and then using C Sharp and then moving it all into .NET, all these things that we did to make it more efficient and then making trading 1,700 topics names possible to do not in three minutes, but in like four picoseconds. Yes. But now all that's changing as well. And they have a vested interest. This is where it gets super interesting for me. These gigantic investment banks, like you said, you have five ops people. I mean, at Goldman, there were 150 of them just in Tokyo, right? And right. Unless, I don't want people to lose their jobs, right? That's not the point. But the point is, there is a necessary efficiency that technology has always been bringing. Yes, that's right. right. That's right. It's hard to sort of say that's going to change overnight, which is why I think when we thought about business model model and our approach, it was to approach a space that was complete, I mean, like I said, a white space. Uh, Nobody has thought uh, about using blockchain to apply to this space. That's definitely. But if you even think about the use of what can blockchain do and the automation of and the digitization of securities? Actually, it opens up. I mean, we're talking about four trillion, but in reality, it starts to blur the line around capital markets. I mean, exactly. That was that was the point I wanted to make. So that's why I asked you about the size because it, it it will blur the line. Yeah, it will continue to blur the line. Well, and. Think about the use cases, and go ahead. I get excited about this. I mean, it's it's a long, it's a long no, hard slog, but you know, yeah. think about green bonds. I'm just making this up. Let's talk about ESG, right? Let's talk about green bonds. The today's and and I'm just seeing it from a Singapore Southeast Asia worldview. Okay, not mm-hmm. not not so much a global worldview, mm-hmm. but I look at the issuers in this part of the world, and what is happening is everybody who would like a green stamp, um, legitimately or or otherwise, basically use their existing program and they are large bond issuers and they are, you know, doing a bond deal anyway, right? So they're just like, let me just sort of, government's giving me grants, I'll just throw on a green audit and I will issue 250 million bond and call it green because it's hot and right, it's, a, I can't it's a thing, necessarily. it's a thing, right? Yeah. And that's great. And then, you know, all, all credit to, to issuers who, who do that. 
But if you think about the, and why do bonds uh, issued at benchmark, you know, let's say 250,000 and uh, 250 million and above, is that the cost of issuing a bond is actually quite very, very high. Yeah. You need to get a custodian and the trustee and the banks have to run it and, and you know, all this cost and, you know, there's a calculation agent and, you know, there's sort of like, you know, 10 uh, vendors you have to approach before you can actually... Look, I ran a portfolio trading desk. I can't tell you how hard it is to make the four o'clock deadline for 15 different funds NAVs. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. We built technology to do it though, right? So I completely understand what you're talking about. The non-triviality of being able to do that at scale is hard yeah. to explain to people that haven't done it. Yeah. And, and if, you, if you thought about it from, and we take it, we all take it for granted. Huh? That's like, that's like people telling me that actually shares are very efficiently traded. And I'm like, actually, no, it's not. Not really. Anyway. But, but anyway. <laughs> anyway, bonds are even worse, right? I mean, the reason why it's OTC, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's actually a very interesting market because it feels big, but it's not actually that efficient or flexible. Anyway, the point is the issuers have all gone, gone down the traditional bond issuing route and just slapping a green label on it. Now, right. but what does that mean? If you stop and think about it, it means that there is no efficiency uh, curve for those who want to raise 50 to 100 million. There's none. I mean, right? Especially if the push is to do green financing and there's a whole bunch of liquidity in the capital markets for green financing. Where is the space for the smaller SME guys who actually truly altruistically want to do green Right, but now, so but now, what you're suggesting is that you're not just flipping the bit on who can invest into things, but you're also flipping the bit on who can issue things. That's yes. the transformational change, really, because yeah. that's well, never changed, right? Yes, that that requires a lot more. Uh, that requires institution. There's a whole, you know, as you can imagine. Retail investors are uh, not, it's still, they're still very, well, high net worth individuals are still a little bit behind the curve on ESG and green bonds. But yes, the issuer piece, let's just think about the 50 million bond size, 100 million bond size. There is a space that's fascinating, right? We mm. just actually launched, for example, a um, commercial paper for oh, yeah. a non-bank financial institution. Okay. And you kind of think commercial paper, like it doesn't exist. Actually, it doesn't exist for the, 10 to 50 million size, oh, right? It does not. And it certainly doesn't exist in Singapore or Southeast Asia. It's all in Europe, right? So, you know, it's very, very interesting, these, these cases where we're actually changing the shape, potentially, of capital markets. Think about, okay, uh, let me give you another, uh, another example. Things that have, like green bonds and blue bonds, and sometimes they have all these requirements and KPIs, all that actually then rather than require, you know, you know, 10 auditors and whatever, a lot of these things can be done by, let's say, a single checkpoint, yep. let's say an auditor, the instruction comes down to the exchange and we automatically recalculate or reset the coupon as it were. Yeah. That is very simply done. Right. Uh, on a, and, and very low cost. So so green bonds, an example, uh, different types of financing. And I know some people have used whiskey funds and wine funds. But if we can even get there, there's so much in between that we can think about uh, financing SMEs or, or things like that. So, so the point is, I'm getting sort of, as I, we started out with, how do we democratize these investments? Right. But in reality, the shape of block, the blockchain will actually reshape a lot of the, the, the thinking around capital markets and what projects can be financed and how that works uh, over time. 
Do you feel like, and this is more of a personal question than a business question, but do you feel like, as you said earlier, it's a slog and it's going to take time, but I can, unless I'm missing something, I hear like this inherent excitement in your voice. Like you feel like you're participating in something that's transformational where like at the end of the day before, and I won't say where, but like before you'd go home at the end of the day and just be like, oh, I can't believe I had to do that again. Where today it's like, oh my God, I can't wait to get back to work. Like I'm exhausted, but this is actually <laughs> awesome. Do you know what I mean? Like when you go home at night, the stories you tell are different as opposed to yeah. ugh, the guy in Europe was such an idiot as opposed to now where it's like, oh my God, I can't wait to go back tomorrow and solve that thing. Is that fair? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I think in a traditional bank, as, as you know, and, and, you know, as it's changed so much in the last decade alone, sure. that the regulatory burden on a bank and, and on bankers have, I think, increased the amount of time that a banker has to spend just doing paperwork. Sure, and, sure. And the, the, you want to talk about MIFID too? Is that oh, exciting oh, for you? Oh, no, wow, seriously. <laughs> I already made you sad. I can already tell oh, you. Oh, really, Please. really sad. Yeah, and, and you do get a sense of in, in larger banks, you know, different the different energy levels around, you know, nobody really wants to solve a problem. Everyone's there to do their job. I understand. And it was super exciting. And, and you know, what's great thing about ISOTS is it's a passionate team. I mean, we're all sort of, we fight and we yell at each other and we, you know, sort of really want, but really because at the heart of it, we want to get things done. We call out people who are not performing. We, we, because every day we look at, I mean, I just, just myself, just looking at what we've achieved and it's very, very modest. Don't get me wrong. But the amount of knowledge that we have and amount of competency and tech, you know, it's not even just about the technology. It's about how to do this in the right way yeah, that evolves cool. every day. I mean, it's cool. It, it blows my mind. I cannot let you go without talking about this capital raise, right? Because you've been very modest about this whole thing. You say, we're not always right. It's not perfect. We've had a lot, we've made a lot of progress, but again, it's modest up until now, but you just announced or the firm just announced you've raised $50 million. It's a lot of money and from some pretty decent investors as well. Yeah. Do you mm -hmm. feel like, I mean, there's so many questions I can ask you. I don't want to keep you on the phone for another hour <laughs> because I know you have stuff to do. <laughs> but, and there's so many things I want to ask you about it. But, you know, the press, particularly the startup press, celebrates the capital raise as if that's the end goal. Mm. But in reality, in my mind, not to be too parochial, but like that's when shit gets hard. Yes. Because um, now you have to really scale. It is. Excuse my language, a, by the way. I'm sorry. No, not at all. It, you know, when we raise this money, it's not even just about scalability. It is about the validity that everyone, ha everyone has an hypo as hypothesis about how this is going to work. Right. right. This validates at least part of it, right? Exactly. And, yeah. and that money needs to be, you know, properly spent. So, you know, we're very, I mean, we're very cautious about the, the way we spend money and our CEO is obviously watching that with, with, a, you know, Hawkeye. <laughs> <laughs> but more importantly, so, so the, the money is obviously uh, by itself important because um, it's something that we we're building out, you know, we, we clearly need the capital, but actually the, 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 what I find um, really interesting about our investors is the willingness 
to invest in us to see what is happening in the space. Right. Now, if you if you look at our investors, SGX, obviously, you know Singapore, you know they they want to make sure they understand what's happening uh, both at the digitization level and the capital markets level, right? So, Makes so sense. that's obvious. Makes sense. Heliconia, Tomasic, you know, they're very progressive. They have a very. big digitization push. Okay, so so that's obvious. But when we talk to people like Kianokin Patra from Thailand, you should know them very well. Yep. Or Tokai Tokyo in Japan, you should also know them very well. Or even Hanoi. No problem. <laughs> Where they were very, very fascinated. And again, we see this with Tokai, and we'll see that a little bit uh, more news about around Japan because we're doing a lot of work with them, mm. is um, the Japan... Uh, infrastructure, the Japan players are very fascinated with digitization. Yeah. And they, I feel the wave of movement of, you know, it's not just Tokai, it's SBI, it's, you know, sort of everybody looking at the next wave of capital markets evolution. And so, you know, Tokai obviously being who they are, uh, also partner, well, the consortium was with JIC, yep. with Roku Bank, with DBJ, uh, with MIC, and all of them are watching this space with so much fascination and really want to think about how to use that for Japan. And I think that is a certainly a, a reflection. Again, I know I talked away about the money because it's actually not about the money anymore for our investors. But again, that's the point I'm trying to make, right? Is that the money's the validation. It's about now we can then go and enact all these things. And if we, the money has to come from somewhere. That was the point. And that is that the money just didn't co come out of, like fall off a tree. It is, it is the manifestation of the belief in the product and the technology that this is going to be transformational. And that if we're not involved, we're going to be left out. And if we're left out at scale, the same way if we were left out of the microchip, then we just weren't going to be there anymore. And that's the bet they're making. Is that fair? That's exactly right. That's, that's why exactly I asked about right. the money. Tokai is a very, very dear and close partner with us. I sort of look at the Singapore landscape with interest, right? Because, you know, Singapore decided to throw the chips in at, at fintech level and yep. they created a lot of change and really paved the way. And sometimes I think about Singapore leading the way and things like these actually we sort of read to our last, you know, sort of big evolution. And this, uh, this is our current revolution yeah. that we're ahead. So actually it, it is taking some time for um, the Japan regulators and the bank and the distribution, mm -hmm. you know, partners and all that to, to get their heads together about how this is going to work. But when that happens, I mean, the Japan space for alternatives will be massive massive and look i think that's i feel like we could go on but i want to save some stuff for our next conversation i want to thank you if that's okay or you too the chief commercial officer at iStocks, for coming on and doing this today that was awesome thank you michael it was great great conversation The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. <laughs>